All right, let's turn our Bibles now to Matthew 24. So a few pages over. Let's turn to Matthew 24, and we will finish up this long chapter of what is called Red Letter, Red Letter Bible, or Teaching Words of Jesus. And it's in this section of Scripture that we've been talking a lot about how Matthew 24 is regularly and often used as a, a Bible passage to talk about the end of the world. And if you've not been with us, I've tried to argue that first and foremost, it's, it's not primarily about the end of the world, even though this is extremely popular way to teach this passage of Scripture, and it's created a whole culture within especially American Christianity. I don't know if you've ever seen these bumper stickers on cars, and in case of the rapture, this car will be unmanned, things like this. Churches talk a lot about the return of Jesus sometimes and post up big pictures and posters of dragons from the book of Revelation and have prophecy conferences and read their newspapers and try and predict what will become of the Antichrist and which politician that is either in office or maybe soon to be in office might be the Antichrist. I don't know if you have those kind of memories or, or, or that kind of church culture or experience. For those listening on the podcast, my papers just flew off. Excuse the break. I remember growing up and listening to a song that was written in the 1960s, was reintroduced in the 1990s by a very popular Christian band called DC Talk. And all last week, my family can confirm this, all last week I, I had this song stuck in my head the song's called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Here, here's the lines that were particularly stuck in my head. A man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and, and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men working in a field. One disappears and one is left standing still. I, I wish we'd all been ready. And then the chorus of the song is, there's no time to change your mind, for the sun has come and you have been left behind. It's no wonder while doing this series of teaching, I, I came across different stories, like one pastor told a story about one of the nightmares he had growing up in churches like the ones I'm describing that teach a very dramatic end of the world kind of teaching and he said that he was eight years old and that he was dreaming that the rapture had happened and that he was being sucked up out of his bed and out of his house and he got lifted up to the top of his house and then he had this thought that Jesus looked at him and said, no, no, I don't want you. You don't have enough faith. Dropped him back down into his bed and he woke up and thought, oh no, I've been left behind. So he runs to his parents' bedroom and thankfully they were there. It was all just a terrible dream. These are the kind of stories that I'm talking about, the, a way of thinking about the coming of Jesus that gives children nightmares and produces what I would say is an unhealthy escapist behavior amongst Christians. Escapist in the sense that let's not really care about our jobs. 
Let's not care about what we're doing in this world right now. Let's, let's think very little about our earth and our relationships with one another. Let's only care about getting people to pray a prayer to receive Jesus so that they don't get left behind. That's the kind of escapist mindset and behavior that I'm referring to. And I believe that there's a way of talking and thinking about the second coming of Jesus that does not produce fear or escapism, but a greater love for God, a greater love for each other, and a greater love for this world that God has made. And that, in fact, is the big idea of today's message. Let me say it again. By eagerly awaiting for God and his return, it will and should produce a love for God, for one another, and for the world. Eagerly awaiting, not anxiously awaiting with fear and nightmares. And at any moment, Jesus could return right now. What's, what are you going to be caught doing? How many times have we heard language like this from pastors? Maybe some of that is warranted, but in many cases, I feel as if it's fear-mongering at best. So let's read our passage together in Matthew 24, and let's see if Jesus' way of talking about the coming judgment is not merely about fear, but about an eager anticipation and something to look forward to. Let's read the passage together. It's Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 to 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. So again, the idea here is, I think if we rightly understand the second coming of Jesus, for most of us, especially for those who are in Christ and Christians, it should produce an eagerness that results in love for God, for one another, and for the work that God has called us in this world. So let's make sure we just basically understand this story. In verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his house? Let's start with the master. Who's the master? Well, it's God. It's, it's Jesus. Jesus is preparing his disciples for a time where he will be gone, and they're waiting for the coming day of judgment. And in the context, as we've been talking about, that coming day of judgment, the first and foremost coming day of judgment in this chapter, is about the destruction of the temple. Go back and look at chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. It's about that kind of coming of the day of the Lord. The temple will be destroyed. A day of judgment will be coming. And in some senses, this story is still talking about that concept. Why do we understand it that way? Well, because he quotes in verse 50 himself. He says, he, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and an hour he does not know. That's the same language he used in verse 36. Look back at verse 36. But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. 
that day when some day of judgment that he's predicted about the Jerusalem temple. He refers to it here in that story. And so the question is, when will this happen? In verse 3 of chapter 24, and he gives the answer in verse 34, in a generation, and we know a generation is 40 years. And as I mentioned last week, 40 years is a long time. 40 years ago was 1980. 40 years ago, Jimmy Carter was president. It's, it's enough time for a generation to come and another generation to go. Think 40 years was the time that the Exodus generation died off in the wilderness. So Jesus is preparing his followers with this series of stories, starting with one that we saw last week about a thief coming in the middle of the night. And you don't know when a thief comes in the middle of the night. If you did know when the thief was coming and there was an appointment for it, he wouldn't come. That's not how thieves work. Jesus is not trying to say he's a thief. He's trying to say it's kind of like a thief. The day of the Lord just comes and no one knows when it's going to happen. In the same way, the destruction of the temple, it's going to come in that way. And so, as I mentioned last week, that does not mean the only way to read these stories and these texts is about something that happened in 70 AD. So let me repeat this one more time. You're reading prophetic apocalyptic literature. Prophetic apocalyptic literature. When you're reading these sections of the Bible, you need to have this phrase in mind. I said it last week. We'll repeat it again. The prophecy is going to happen in history, and in this case, it did. 70 AD, the temple did fall, just as Jesus predicted. And then this coming day is going to happen, and it is happening. So it happened, it is happening, and it will happen. And in this case, these stories are extremely relevant. And so from this point on, I'm going to just assume that you have heard the last several weeks of sermons. We're going to stop talking about 70 AD. I've hopefully made my case about how I believe this passage is about something that already did happen. But in another sense, it's something that is happening. And in a greater, more ultimate sense, it is something that will happen. It is about the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus's final return as he came first as a baby, and he comes again in judgment. So because the temple destruction happened in 70 AD, the the way this passage should work is, because Jesus' word came true, you should be all the more certain that his words and the predictions of a future judgment and a second return, a second coming of Jesus, will happen in our world and life. So what does eagerly awaiting the return of the master look like for you and for me? That's the key question of our text. What difference does it make in our lives? Well, let's just at least make sure we understand the difference in this story. What difference does it make in terms of the approach between these two servants? And in some respects, actually, it's one servant with two situations. So is Jesus is kind of presenting a hypothetical. Well, The good and wise faithful servant looks this way. Or what if that same servant decides not to be wise and faithful and he looks a different way? Either way, we've got two ways to live. And for many of us, that's true of our lives. There's two ways to live. We can be a good and faithful servant. And that does not mean sitting by the window, watching for the master to return, but getting busy with the work that he's been given by his master. Do you see that in verse 45? Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time? So this phrase is just meaning that there's a a man who 
owns a large estate. And remember we're in the first century, so there's different slaves and servants and people that are underneath of this wealthy landowner. And so there is somebody that's a manager that's going to be in charge, and they're going to be the ones that divvy out food and take care of the needs of those different slaves and servants. And so Jesus is entering into that world. He's not condoning slavery. He's just explaining this is the way the world works then, and he's using a story from that world. As he does so, he says, Blessed, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Or some translations put it this way, Blessed is the man, happy, in a state of wonderful joy and contentment, is the man who, when the master returns, is busy doing his work. In sum, get to work with the job that your master has given you. He has put you in charge of his house, so take care of it. On the other hand, this other alternative story is a slave who's assuming that the master will not be back, and he is delayed. So therefore, he has a different perspective. He, he decides to not do his job well. So he says in verse 48, But if that wicked servant says to himself, Well, it's been a few years. He said he was going to come in this generation, and it's been two, three decades. I don't know. I'm not thinking he's really coming back. So he starts to just treat his fellow servants instead of providing for them and giving them the food at the proper time. He beats the fellow servants and eats their food and gets drunk and he lives as a selfish, indulgent jerk, right? The master of the servant will come on a day and when he doesn't expect it in an hour, he doesn't know and he's going to be surprised and say, oops. So there's two ways to live here. One of them leads to eternal blessedness with a great reward he will set over him. Verse 47, blessed is this man because he will have more possessions to rule over. In other words, if you do a good job with what God's given you here in this life right now, he returns, then you're going to be given more responsibility and you will have more work to do. If you find yourself thinking and living as if, I don't really think this whole Jesus thing is true. I don't think he's ever going to return. I'm just not so convinced. The master is delayed. Then you will be sorely surprised when he does return. And you find yourself not ready. Not doing the work that he has called you to do. And that's the key point of our passage. What is the work? that he has called you to do? And what does it look like for us to eagerly long for his return? By getting busy doing what God has asked us to do, which is what? Well, first and foremost, Jesus' commands that he has given us that summarize all of the commands in the whole Bible are love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So every other command can fall under those commands. So in some sense, you could say, if we're properly, eagerly waiting for his return, then we're like this first servant and we're busy doing the work that God's called us to, which is love. Love of God, love of one another, which is why our big idea is what? We should not be afraid and panicky about the second coming of Jesus. It should stir and fuel love and obedience. It should make us more earthly as we get more heavenly in our mindset. Have you heard the phrase, the more 
heaven-minded you are, the less earthly good you will be. It's the other way around. The more heavenly-minded you are, the more good you should be for this earth. So what if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Now, we don't know. This Bible passage is telling us definitively none of us know. But for a thought experiment, what if you knew somehow, some way, God revealed to all of us, a voice from the heavens comes and says, it's tomorrow. How do you spend the rest of today? I really want all of us to think hard about that this week. At any moment, at any, at any time, the readiness means go about living your lives as if Jesus was coming back at any time. So it could be tomorrow, it could be today. Does that mean you radically shift the way that you live? For some of you, yes. For some of you, no. For some of you, it just means continue pressing on, fighting the good fight of loving God and loving one another. When Martin Luther, 500 years ago, was asked this question, what if tomorrow Jesus was going to return? His answer was, I'd go out to my garden and plant a tree. The reason he talks like that is because he likes to startle you. And the reason I'm bringing that up is to try and get this stuck in your head. If Jesus was coming back tomorrow, go out to your garden and tend your garden. Go out to Ryan and Julia's wedding today and live as if the things that you've been called to do are actually good and aspire love toward God and one another. And not think, oh no, I better do something quick before I hurry and get, get things in order because I got 24 hours to earn enough credits before Jesus comes back. That's the kind of mindset that ignores the cross and the grace of God. That's the kind of mindset that says, I need, I need to earn this. The good and faithful and wise servant is just going about his day-to-day -day task and he's ready at any moment because the day-to-day -day task is how you get yourself ready. This is what I mean by a drastic difference between what seems to be the end of the world doom culture in Christian circles that I referred to in the intro of this message and the kind of spirit that we see in this story that Jesus is saying, do your job, pursue love, love God, love one another, Fulfill your calling as image bearers. Care about daily faithful activities of worship in your home, with your children, reading the word, spending time in prayer. I was talking with one of you and we were talking about this discussion. I said, I feel like most of the times when I grew up and I heard about Jesus was returning tomorrow, then I should spend like the whole day in prayer. Well, maybe, but do you normally do that? What would lead you to think, I should spend the whole day in prayer? Because when Jesus comes back, I want, to find, I want him to find me praying. Well, that would be nice. I suppose that's sweet. But in general, think about Martin Luther's advice. Fulfill your calling as humans. Do your everyday job. Wake up tomorrow morning knowing Jesus could be returning at noon and go to work that morning. Living as if you're confident, resting and trusting that this is the path that he has taught me and this is what I've been doing. And so I'm going to love God, love my neighbor and do my work. The calling he has for you as husbands, as wives, as children, as students. I mean, it would be really hard, right? Some of you that are students, should I really study for the final if I knew that Jesus was coming? 
And that's why it's a thought experiment. You don't know when he's coming, and so therefore it creates this attitude, as C.S. Lewis rightly says, it's the attitude of being in your older age. And some of you, this should hopefully be relevant. When you're in your 70s and 80s, C.S. Lewis says, precisely because none of us can predict the moment when we will die, we must be ready at all times. In the same way that a soldier does not know when the enemy will attack or what time the officer will inspect his post, the soldier must be awake and ready at all times. Not that we should be running around in fear that the end might happen at any moment. Instead, we should be like that 80-year-old man who needs on the one hand not to be always thinking about his death every day, but at 80, he should be taking it into account. In fact, it would be criminally foolish that if he did not make his will and make plans and so on. So now what death is to each of us, so the second coming of Jesus is to the whole human race. Do you hear what C.S. Lewis is trying to say? In the same way that an older person needs to prepare for their death, you should. It's, it's almost criminal, but you, to be obsessed by it? I'm not sure if you've been around a grandparent or, or someone in their older age and it just seems like all they're talking about is, I just want to die. I mean, is that, that's not producing love for God and love for each other. Use your days every day longing for the return of Jesus, longing for God to make things right, but not in some sort of fear-mongering, anxious, I just want to escape this dreadful earth, as bad as it sometimes is. So how can we think about the second coming of Jesus eagerly if there's passages of Scripture like this? The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him in an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that sounds anxious and worrisome for, for maybe some of us. If, if we're not right with God, then yes, it's a wake-up call. But for many of you in this room, for many of us that are here gathered together, it is not a moment for you to be anxious. It's a moment for you to remember that to faithfully pursue your calling, your everyday tasks, your mundane, ordinary changing of diapers and taking care of your babies, those kind of tasks, God will look upon you and say, truly, blessed is that servant, for I will set over them all my possessions. What is mine is now theirs. The inheritance of the kingdom of this master now belongs to this servant. That's something to be eagerly looking for. But can we also be longing for the day of judgment and knowing that God's going to make things right? Or is it too fearful and threatening for us to imagine that God is going to bring judgment? Now, I know the language here is intense. <laughs> I'm not trying to downplay that. I do think this is, in some ways, it's a, it's a parable. It's, a, it's an exaggerated story, but the reality of it is, is just as intense. The judgment of God is nothing to trifle with or play around with. So to read, cut into pieces, literally it's to cut in half like an animal sacrifice and to be placed in a place that is full of weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, that sounds awful and dreadful, and it is. But in many ways, it's right and it's good. And the second coming of Jesus should stir up in us, as I mentioned last week, and I, I want to touch on this just for a moment more. It should produce a greater love for God, a greater love for one another, and a greater love for this world. 
There's a book called Engaging God's World and how we should as faithful Christians engage the world around us. And it's written by Cornelius Plantiga. And he says this, he says, the second coming of Jesus is good news if your life is utterly filled with bad news. So imagine yourself as a slave in Pharaoh's Egypt. Or imagine yourself in the southern United States in the early 19th century or in the 1960s during the Jim Crow laws. Or if you're an Israelite exiled in Babylon or a Kosovar exiled in Albania, or if you're a woman in a culture where your husband is mad at you and he can lock you in a closet and call up his buddies and threaten to rape you. Or if you're a Christian right now in sub-Sahara Africa where AIDS is devastating populations. When you hear about the second coming of Jesus in those contexts, you do not yawn. The coming of the kingdom depends on the coming of a king, and the coming of the king means justice will fill the earth. Passionate Christians will eagerly want the return of their king, and so do compassionate ones. So do compassionate ones. Hearing about the justice of God in this story that Jesus says, where wicked servants will be dealt with, is a great and wonderful reminder to help you have compassion and love for those who are oppressed. It should stir up love for God. God loves us. He's not leaving us alone. He sees the racial injustice in our country and he's going to do something about it. Does that make you love him more? Does it make him love you more when you realize that God sees the political injustice and the crazy riots that are going on in our country and he does not turn his ear or his eye? He knows, he cares, he loves. And the story tells us that when he returns, there will be wise and faithful servants who are spending their lives changed and transformed by the love of God. Well done, good and faithful servants. And then there will be those that have put God off like a stiff arm and they will be rightly judged by the way that they have beaten God's servants, taken his possessions and abused them for their own selfish, indulgent pleasures. There's two ways to live. You right now are living in God's house with his stuff. How are you stewarding them? Are you pursuing love for neighbor, love for God with those possessions? whether it's finances, whether it's material possessions, whether it's the time that you have, all of these things are further amplified and get a jolt of strength and a boost by looking at the return of Jesus and knowing that it could happen at any moment. So let's finish and conclude this message with this wonderful thought that the return of Jesus should stir up for us the joy of the gospel. The joy of a God who loves us, loves justice and, and righteousness and, and does not turn a deaf ear. The God who so deals with sin that he does so by himself getting right in the middle of it. You see, as we've been reading through Matthew 24, we've just now come to the end of the chapter. And if you read the whole thing, do it. Read the whole thing from beginning to end. See if you don't realize this language is intense. It's it's at times violent, even in our passage. This wicked servant cut into pieces, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as I mentioned, it's, it's literally cut in half like an animal for an animal sacrifice. So I ask 
this question for you. Jesus says in verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant? And I ask you, who then is the faithful and wise servant who fully deserves the inheritance of God's kingdom and the blessings of God and that statement, blessed is he, but instead actually received the full weight of God's judgment? Who was the one that was cut in pieces and became the slaughtered sacrificial lamb? In Matthew 24, Jesus predicted that there would be a coming day of judgment. And on that day, the sun would be darkened. And as we jump forward to Matthew 27, what happened on the day of Jesus' crucifixion? Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. From 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., there was darkness over the entire land. And Jesus cries out, maybe insert in, deep agonizing cry, weeping, gnashing of teeth. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who was the one shouting and screaming and gnashing his teeth as he hung on a cross? Matthew 24 says the earth would be shaken on the day of judgment when God comes and makes things right. And in Matthew 27, we read, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth foundations shook and rocks were split. When you read Matthew 24, it seems as if Judgment is coming. And then you read Matthew 27, and it seems as if judgment has come. A day of judgment has already happened when Jesus dies and hangs on a cross. Because in Matthew 27, it was a day of judgment. Jesus Christ became a human. God the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man and he was judged in our place, lived the perfect, faithful, wise, servant-like life and only did what was good. He, he did his job. He lived every day as if it was his last. He knew that so many of us were the wicked servants and that we deserve the punishment and the wrath of God the splitting into pieces and the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, but he took on that punishment in our place. So should you be worried about the return of the master? Not if you realize that Jesus has made a way for all of us to be that faithful servant, to produce love in our hearts through his Holy Spirit and to forgive us of all of our many sins and offenses against him. Jesus faced the judge so that you and I ultimately would be counted righteous before him. At the first coming, Jesus did not come to bring judgment. He came when he first was born and entered to the earth to take the judgment. This is the gospel. Jesus, the great judge of the universe, came not to bring judgment to the earth, but take it in our place so that the whole earth, including our human bodies, would be restored and renewed and you would have a greater, deeper appreciation for the material created world, not an escapist, ideology that wants to run away from it. That's why he died and rose again, to declare victory over death and create a whole new world in the midst of this present fleeting, suffering one. And there will be a day when that renovation project of this present earth is completed, when he returns and when that day is, we do not know. But we should wait for it eagerly and long for it, for that is when God will make things right and that is when God will give you your inheritance if you are those who are in Christ. So are you? How are you doing at taking care of God's house?
Friends, let's use this time as a time to examine our own lives and ultimately lead us to repentance and faith and trust. Let's turn in a time of prayer now. Our Heavenly Father, we come in the name of Jesus and we want to give you thanks first and foremost for the good news of the gospel that Jesus is our servant, a suffering servant, a faithful and wise servant, the servant that we do not deserve. We thank you for Christ, for the good news of his death on a cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven, his outpouring of the Spirit, and the down payment that the new creation has already started with one key sign. Resurrection life has already broken through this present earth. Help us long for future resurrection. Help us long for the day when all wrongs will be made right and all the sad things come untrue. We want to pray that you would stir up our hearts in this way and lead us to further trust you and live our lives filled with love toward God, toward one another, and toward this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.